Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is One God by Pastor Sean Wood. Let's pray before we come around God's Word. Father, we just thank you. You are glorious. And your Word exposes your glory. Holy Spirit, we need you right now to take from what is of the Father and make it known to us. Jesus said that that's what you would do. And, and I can't do that, but you can do that. So right now I hand over to you, Holy Spirit. I pray you keep me from error. And I pray that your word would, as James says, become implanted in our hearts. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. We live in uh, interesting times, and uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it's interesting how in the book of Ecclesiastes he says nothing is new under the sun. Nothing has changed. And uh, I remember when I was at Lagana Christian Church, that's where I came from, a little place called Tasmania. It's overseas for those that are wondering where that is. But uh, I remember when we were there, the the then pastor decided he would do a 200-part series on the book of Jeremiah. Some nine years later, it was still going and we managed to escape. However, um, I learned a lot about the book of Jeremiah. I learned a lot about Israel at that time. And there were some very haunting aspects about what was going on at that time. One of the most haunting aspects was when Jeremiah confronts not only the king. Uh, Jeremiah was 12, by the way. When he first prophesies against the king, he's 12 years of age. Don't ever look down on your youth. Uh, we need more young people prophesying to kings, maybe. Um, however, uh, Jeremiah would go on to say words like, uh, you guys are out here on the steps and you're going through all of the ordinance and uh, all the ceremony seems to be intact. You're wearing the right clothes, the sacrifices are done in the right way, but when you peel the curtain back, it's full of your idols. See, so the temple had become full of their gods. They had allowed themselves to intermingle with the cultures around them. We're going to touch on that later because God had specifically designed that Israel, have a look at the, geographically, have a look at Israel. If God is not preserving that country, then they aren't doing it on their own. Uh, And that's always been the case, but they're always called to be different, always called to be separate, always called, the, the one thing that set Israel apart from all the other nations was they worshipped one God. And one of the very large differences about us as Christians is we worship one God. However, we live in a culture, even today, I'm, I'm amazed how when you can open up any part of Scripture, it speaks very largely to our day. And, and just like the time of Jeremiah, I believe there's a huge challenge to our culture today because there are many, many gods. They may have different names today. They, they might have names like money. They may have names like career. They may have uh, names like uh, success and social status. But people, everybody is worshipping and we have formed gods, but they just have different names. When we come to the church at Pergamum, there's some really interesting stuff going on. Uh, the church at Pergamum was a place of many gods. Uh, there is, and we'll touch on this one in a moment, but there was and there still is today the altar to the god Zeus. Small Z. We only use a capital letter, by the way, when we address the god. We don't use a capital because he's a person, so we need to have a capital letter for him. However, there was the altar of Zeus, but it gets worse. 
There was the God of wisdom. There was a God of the crops. There was, uh, they worshipped uh, many, many gods in Pergamum, but they were renowned for something uh, rather particular. They had uh, this kind of health and healing place. A little bit like the places you go today where they drink kale shakes and eat sawdust burgers. It was, it was actually very well renowned and people travelled long distances to come to this place of healing, this, this healing centre. In fact, the symbol for this healing centre, for the medical people in the room, was a serpent that was wrapped around a pole, which is where we get our medical symbol today. And amidst this culture, something dramatic begins to take place. What happens is the Jews that are living there, because Jews were accepted amongst the many other gods, they weren't really much of a threat. They kind of tried to intermingle even themselves in some ways. But what happens is all these guys go to uh, their annual Pentecost festival. And while they're there, something very dramatic happens. Suddenly, we read in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit impacts very deeply. Some people there, they begin talking in languages, the wonders and the glory of God. And and many, many apostles stand up and declare one that has been risen from the dead. And they, they are converted under the power of God. The Holy Spirit penetrates their hearts, but they go back to Pergamum. They go back to this place that is full of many, many different gods. And in that place, they stand up and say, we know the one God. That is the call for the church at Pergamon. We're going to have a look at some interesting stuff because what Jesus says when we read, if you've met me in Revelations chapter 2, verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write. Now, by the way, the opening line that Jesus uses in these letters uh, to each church, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, the opening line speaks to the message and the challenge that he has for that church. And today we read the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And for those who know scripture will know the sharp two-edged sword is in reference to the word of God. It's in reference to the truth of God. Jesus says, I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I am the God. And to this church at Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That sounds a little bit dramatic, doesn't it? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And uh, the word throne there, I thought that was interesting because I'm thinking, hang on a second, has the enemy kind of set up some kind of kingdom of his own here? But the reality is the word throne there speaks about uh, the throne of one's house. It's it, it's to be comfortable. It's It speaks about the residence. This is where the enemy resides. Why does he reside there? Because it's really comfortable for him. Why? Because everybody's worshipping anything and everything apart from the God. You know, nothing's changed. Do you know you could take Pergamum right now and put it into the culture here at Brisbane? And in that culture, the challenge was that they would stand for truth. And we're going to have a look at that in a moment, that they would take a stand for truth, that they would live for him. Uh, I love the words of... uh, Dwight L. Moody, for those who know D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody says the best way to show that a stick is crooked is not to argue about it or spend time denouncing it, but to lay a straight stick alongside of it. We're living in times today when, you know what, I honestly believe the culture around us, 
the people that are non-believers, they're tired of hearing what it is that the church is against. Every time you hear from the church, we're standing up telling you what it is that we're against and, and we're all about pointing out the crooks in everybody else's stick and those bends in everybody else's stick have even creeped into churches, you know. We allow those bends to define us theologically and doctrinally and, and denominationally. But Dwight L. Moody, uh, I believe, sums it up beautifully and the call to the church of Pergamum is a call to us today Instead of pointing out the crooks in everybody else's stick, how you about you just live the truth of God's word? Dwight L. Moody decided he would do that and he made a deep impact. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon wrote, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. But <clears throat> it's interesting that what is noteworthy here is that amidst all the conflict, I mean, in in first century Asia Minor, what you didn't do was stand up and challenge everybody else's gods. That's not something that you did. It wasn't taken very well. And uh, it's interesting that amidst all of the conflict and amidst all of the pressure, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what? Satan's throne here, guys. The enemy's really comfortable. He set up his throne here. Uh, You guys come away from here. (laughs) You guys move your church to the next village. That's not what Jesus says. Never says that. Never says, come out of there. He never says, don't mix with those guys. No, he says, and we will see continually that Jesus says, stand for me and live for me. The power of a gospel-shaped life. Yet you hold fast my name. How many people are puffing their chest out now? If if this was a letter to the rock, if this was Pergamum or Pergamos Christian Church and and Jesus was writing to us and we were hearing, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny the faith. I mean, uh, it's kind of like sometimes we need to settle within ourselves that the call of God, when the storm is raging, uh, quite often God doesn't calm the storm. Rather, he calms the Christian. And quite often our prayer life changes when we grab that perspective. Let me kind of help you to see how that might change. It changes often when the storms of life hit us. We want the storms to change and God to miraculously stop and change everything when our prayer life should be, God, make me stronger. Give me more of the Holy Spirit. I was uh, flabbergasted when I read Paul's letters to some of these churches and I read about his prayer list for these guys. You know, Paul often spoke about the trials that they were suffering. He often spoke about the persecution that they were undergoing and not once does he ask for it to be removed. What did he pray for churches like Ephesus? What did he pray for churches like uh, Colossae and others? That they would know him. That they would have a greater knowledge of his love. That in all the trials they would stand firm. Sounds like a radically different prayer list today, but it calms the Christian amidst all the storms. Heads up, if you decide you're going to stand for Christ, I needed to kind of put that disclaimer in first because if you're sitting here today saying, you know what, I, I want to be that straight stick, you're going to get some opposition and some storms are going to brew. The enemy doesn't like people that decide, you know what, I'm going to live by God's word and I'm going to lay down a straight stick. And the enemy is ever, ever, ever trying to pull us down 
tries two different ways. First way is full frontal attack. We're going to have a look at that in a moment. And sometimes he tries a different tact, which is touched on here in this challenge. I know where you dwell with Satan's throne, he says, Jesus, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, this is not a metaphor. Antipas is a real guy. We, we don't know a whole lot about him, but I'm going to unpack what's going on here. It speaks about even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so who is Antipas and what actually happened? Well, Antipas, the best we know is that uh, he was, uh, history would tell us that he was ordained as the Bishop of Pergamum at the hands of the Apostle Paul. So he was the leader of the church at Pergamum. That, that is pretty resolutely known. What we do know is this, he was confronted. What happened was his life and living for this one true God so impacted those around him, so challenged those around him, so unsettled those around him that they began to bring accusations against him. Until the end when the then governor in the region drags him into one of the three temples, by the way, three temples set up in Pergamum for the worship of the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor at that point in time. Uh, he drags him into one of those and says, you must offer a sacrifice now and burn incense to the emperor. Antipas refuses. How many people know what's going to happen next? He is sentenced to death on the altar of Zeus. The reason I'm going to unpack the graphicness of what happens here is because every Christian in Pergamum is watching what's going on. C.S. Lewis says, Faith isn't really faith until it begins to cost you something. It's about to cost the Christians of Pergamum are about to realise there's a price tag to standing for Jesus sometimes. It's not always physical death, but maybe family won't speak to you anymore. Maybe, maybe friends won't speak to you anymore. Maybe, maybe you'll be isolated and ostracised, but for Antipas, he was sentenced to death, handed over to die on the altar of Zeus. And what they used to do uh, on the altar of Zeus was they had a big bronze bull. And uh, they would put people inside the bronze bull, tie you horizontally, so that your head was at the head of the bull. And then they would light a fire underneath and roast you inside the bull. And the whole scenario was supposed to be that while you're yelling (laughs) in pain, it's making noises out of the bull and it's supposed to sound like some great big worship service. Sounds really nice, doesn't it? And everybody's watching this going on, except something very, very different happened. For those that were there, they said, we didn't hear any roars coming out of the bull. We heard Antipas praying for his church. As the young people say today, it just got real. And Antipas got a little bit of credit. Facing what's just happened to Antipas, Jesus says, he's my faithful witness. He's he's my faithful martyr. You have held fast my name and you have not denied the faith, even amidst what happened to Antipas and under the threat of what might happen to you. You held fast my name. However, there's a but coming. Let's listen to what Jesus has to say to the church of Pergamon. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but. Sometimes buts in Scripture are good. These ones in the book of Revelation haven't been all that good. 
Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. I'm going to read all these through and then we're going to touch on the two that were beginning to press on the church at Pergamon. So, so important because it's pressing on the church today. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak. I don't know why they couldn't have John and Chris, right? (laughs) Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We'll touch on that one in a moment. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It wasn't a secret sect of smokers. That was the Nicotinians. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. And we'll touch on both of these because what we see is when Jesus is asking these guys, when Jesus demands of the church of Pergamon, you guys live a life that's a straight stick, then what's gone wrong here? What is, well, what is it that Jesus is challenging them about? What's this whole Balaam and Balak thing? And who are the Nicolaitans? Great questions. I'm glad you asked all of those questions. For those who uh, have read the book of Numbers, you will know, I'm going to paraphrase the story very quickly quickly for you. Uh, You will know the account of Balaam and Balak. Uh, I take some uh, encouragement from this story, of course, because I, what I take away from the story of Balaam and Balak is, you know what, if God can talk through a donkey, he can talk through this ass. (laughs) We'll edit that out. No, we won't. But for those who are unaware, Balak is the then Moabite king. Uh, he's in conflict with Israel. And so what he does is Balak gets hold of Balaam and says, look, I offers him some pretty large amount of money. He says, listen, I want you to come and call down curses on the sons of Israel. And I know that when you do that, that I'll be able to overpower them. What's Balak saying in the first place anyway? Their power obviously rests with God, right? He recognises that. But anyway, uh, Balak says to Balaam, you come and call down curses on the people of Israel. Balaam says, you know what, this is kind of worth it. This is a good stash of money. So off he goes, and we know the story about the donkey and the ass and all those sorts of things. But however, what he finds when he gets there is he begins to try and pronounce a curse, but he can only pronounce blessings. I love how God works. That even from the most ill motives, God can bless you. But Balaam won't stop there because he wants the money. Doesn't work, Balak becomes frustrated. So Balaam offers another way. He says, you know what, instead of trying to bring these guys down in a full frontal assault, why don't we bring them down from within? How does he do that? Well, what he does is he says, get these guys to, let's bring in these Moabite women to seduce them. And in seducing them, they'll intermingle and they'll become married and that's exactly what happens. These, these Moabite women come down, they seduce the sons of Israel, they become married. Everybody's thinking, well, hang on a second, why would God have a problem with that? Israel's getting married, right? These guys are getting married, they're doing things how it's supposed to be. The problem is that after a period of time when it comes to intermarriage with Israel, what happens is after a period of time, you can't tell the difference between a Moabite and an Israelite. How does that apply to us today? If we allow the world to sneak in the back door, it's not long before you can't tell the difference between us and a social club. Hey, when I played football, you know, the other 17 guys had my back, man. When I played football, if I missed a game and I didn't let anybody know, they picked the phone up and said, are you all right? What's the difference between a football club and a church? The presence of the almighty God. 
So what had happened was, in those days, these guys had come on the inside and uh, the, the, what, what was facing the church at Pergamum is, is the same problem that's facing the church today, and it's called compromise. You see, the enemy can't bring you down in a full frontal assault, so what he tries to do is he, he tries to come in the back door and, and just take this little compromise, just accept this little bit. The next thing you know, you're all the way down the end of the path. In destruction. I remember uh, watching a TV show called Air Crash Investigation. Anybody ever watch that show? I, I resolved one thing after watching those shows. I'm going to go by boat, not by plane. <laughs> yeah. Because if anything goes wrong, I can swim, but I can't fly, Terry. <laughs> However, I remember watching one show, and what they would do is they would come onto the accident scene of one of these uh, big airliners that had crashed, and then they would rewind the tape to try and find out what's happened. And so uh, plane goes down. Unfortunately, uh, everybody on board was killed. Passenger plane, a lot of people on the plane. Uh, everybody's up in arms. What's gone wrong here? And they rewind the tape to try and find out. Was it pilot error? Uh, by the way, if you're going to go on a plane, I think I spoke to Daryl about it this morning, either sit at the back of the plane or right where the black box is. Why? Because planes never back into mountains, and the first thing they look for is the black box. Uh, there's a couple of things I learned from aircraft investigation. However, uh, what I learned from this particular crash was when they rewound it, they found that before this particular flight, there was some maintenance done. One of the guys at the airport, it was due for routine maintenance, so he went ahead and he did some maintenance. He had to actually replace one of the panels on the side of the fuselage. Not a very big panel, but he had to replace one of the panels, so he took the panel off, did everything perfectly well. Plane takes off, except one small problem. The rivets he used to put the piece of fuselage back on were just just the slightest millimetre too small. And of course, when it's in the air, the fuselage becomes loose, tears a big hole in the side of the plane, everybody crashes. What's the moral of the story? One small rivet brought down an entire plane and what the enemy does is bring in small rivets of compromise into our lives. Next thing you know... You're at a crash scene on the ground. How did I get to this place? And that's what was beginning to happen at Pergamon. They were beginning to compromise in their teaching. They were beginning to compromise in their lifestyle. They were, uh, they were trying to worship the one God but keep all the people happy. Ever realised you can't do that? Steve Jobs, who's not with us anymore, says, if you want to be a leader, fine, but if you want to be, keep everybody happy, sell ice cream. If there is one threat that is dangerously posed against the people of God today, it is the threat of compromise. We allow that small little thought to come in. We, we might allow that small, it doesn't matter, I'll just, just miss church this once, I, miss this, I won't read my Bible today, it won't really matter, all those sorts of things. It has huge weight. And if the enemy will do everything to distract you in the small things, the next thing you know, you're standing at a crash. It's kind of like uh, I was going to do this, but I, I, I thought I won't because I'll probably end up making a mess. But if I had a glass of water here right now and I had a small little shot glass of coffee and I showed you the glass of water, you would recognise that as clear water. But if I just put that little amount of coffee in there, God created water to filter coffee, by the way, for those that are wondering. If I put that little bit of coffee in there, all of a sudden it's not long before you can't recognise anything of that water anymore. All you can see is coffee. 
That's what was beginning to happen. The, the, the good news for Pergamum and the good news for the church of Jesus Christ is, note that only some of them were holding to that teaching Jesus is. It wasn't all of them. <clears throat> Jesus goes on and says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there that hold to the teaching of Balak. It was a stumbling block. They had fallen, they had tripped because they were beginning to compromise. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And when we look at the broad spectrum of what is the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the best way to unpack it, the best way to describe it in today's language is it was a teaching of hypergrace. Let me kind of give you the context of where we trace the roots of the Nicolaitans and how we find uh, ourselves in this position. I believe it's Acts chapter 6. I didn't check the reference. I believe it's Acts chapter 6. We read about a proselyte by the name of Nicholas. Now, for those who are unaware, a proselyte was one who had converted to Judaism. It was, it was one that a Pharisee had converted over to Judaism. However, he is confronted with the reality of Christ, the resurrected Christ, and he becomes a Christian. It's not long before this sect uh, of the Nicolaitans begins, but the problem was uh, we have this guy, Nicholas, who's dabbled in Judaism, he's dabbling in Christianity, and was very much dabbling in the occult. And what he was trying to do was uh, he was trying to declare that there didn't need to be and it was not necessary for there to be a separation between all of the religions. That they could all be blended, that we could all have bits and pieces of all of them, and it was enormously popular. The teaching was very, very, uh, I would put it under the brackets of liberal Christianity. Uh, Liberal Christianity today could sound like, uh, and I know I'm possibly going to receive some emails, but you know what? It sounds a little bit like ordaining homosexual ministers. That's just one example. Another one is in America where a transgender person has been ordained. It's compromise. It's liberal. It's tolerating that which God has asked us not to tolerate. I want to set the record straight. Uh, Many people say that Christians are intolerant. And they're right, but they're wrong. They're wrong because we're not intolerant of people. We're not intolerant of your past. We're not intolerant of any of that. But we are intolerant of lies, deception, and non-truth. And there's a good reason for that. Because liberal Christianity or hyper-grace is enormously, enormously seducing today. Let me unpack a little bit. I had to do a lot of digging to kind of give you a broad term because I know I use terms like hypergrace and you're sitting in your pews going, what do you mean by that? So I, I didn't want that to happen. I want you to be clear in what I mean when I use that word. Things like all sin, past, present and future is already forgiven. And what that means is there's no need for repentance or confession. Wrong. We are not bound to Jesus' teachings as we are not under the law. Now, hypergrace says, you know what, everything that Jesus taught was before the resurrection, so it was old covenant. We don't need to listen to any of the stuff that Jesus had. We don't have to hold to his teachings. Wrong. Uh, They believe that believers are not responsible for their sin. Man, that's a popular one today. 
I'm going to quote a very popular international preacher. Now, I'm going to use any names, but I'm going to quote a very popular international preacher who's written books along these lines, and he would say today, uh, quoting him almost verbatim, it's like now that we're all under grace, and we're going to actually have a look at what grace really is because this is affecting the church today. Now that we're all under grace, all sin is forgiven, and now when you commit adultery, it's a righteous act because where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Wrong. But men, it's popular. And these small, how do you end up with a polluted river? Small amounts of toxicity flowing in. And anybody who objects to any of their teachings are pharisaical legalists. We're all Pharisees. If you object to their teachings, we are uh, all legalists and we're not free and we're not under grace. They pervert the grace of God for the use of liberal license to sinful carnality. God's grace is powerful, says Paul, and I'm going to unpack what grace should be. You see, when Paul was writing to the Romans, yes, he did use that term that where where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. But when Paul speaks about grace, he also speaks about free license. And he says, if you think that grace means that you can spend this on your pleasures, you guys don't get grace. Paul says... uh, Grace is not a doorway for me to enter into sin. No, 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 no. It's the motivation for me to run away from it. The Nicolaitans had that around the wrong way. What was the problem with the church at Pergamon? They were compromising with the culture around them and they were tolerating teaching that was tickling their ears. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. In 1997, why is this all important? In 1997, a 14-year-old boy by the, Nathan, by the name of Nathan Zona, I don't know if anybody's heard that name, Nathan Zona was only a 14-year-old boy when he convinced 43 of his fellow 50 ninth graders to vote in favour of banning dihydrogen monoxide. Does anybody know what that is? Water. Also known as Water. It was a science project fair titled How Gullible Are We? In it, he has now started something which is called zonerism. Zonerism is the use of a fact to lead a scientifically ignorant public to a false conclusion. Why is it that the enemy doesn't want you to open your Bible? Because in, in standing nowhere, we try to stand everywhere. And we are susceptible if we don't know our Bibles. This is why we are, we are big here on opening our Bibles. On you guys, you don't need me. You, everybody in this room has the Holy Spirit. You don't need me to unpack the Word of God for you. You don't need me to understand the Bible. But you're going to need to open it. So that... Sometimes when these things come in, they trip something inside of us. Hang on a second, that doesn't sound right. In This rings very large in church circles. It's very popular for people. You can fill, you can fill massive auditoriums today by teaching people they're not responsible for their sin and you can do whatever you like today because it's all under grace 
uh, other teachings that are very liberal and very open are teachings like universalism, where you know what? There's no such place as an eternity without Christ. There's no such thing as that because a loving God will not send anybody to hell. So we're all going to make our way to heaven. Very liberal. Sounds very nice. Sounds very sweet. In fact, the guy who wrote the book was on the New York Times bestsellers list for over 18 months. Rob Bell. Love wins. The opposite of loose and liberal tolerance is laying down a straight stick and standing on the truth of God's word. My question to everybody in this auditorium today, are you willing to live a life that looks like a straight stick? As I finish today, I want to use an analogy. Uh, for those that have been to the motherland, Tasmania, I think, I, I think I've got that in nearly every week so far. For, for those that have been to the motherland and have blessed themselves by going to a place called Strawn, uh, just to give you a little bit of context, uh, if you eat Atlantic salmon from Tasmania, likelihood is it comes from Macquarie Harbour in Strawn. But something very interesting happens in Macquarie Harbour. Macquarie Harbour or down in the Huon. But in Macquarie Harbour or in Strawn, it rains over 300 days of the year. Uh, that's not just something they say down there. It's actually true. If you get two sunny days back to back, God, Jesus must be coming back because uh, uh, everything's starting to align, right? Uh, however, they get something like over 900 mils of rain and Macquarie Harbour is like this bowl that sits with the Gordon River flowing or the Franklin and the Gordon flowing in at one end and the tumultuous uh, west coast of Tasmania just here. And there's a small opening uh, that you can go out through Devil's Gate uh, that takes you out uh, into the open ocean, which not many people go out there. It's pretty rough and woolly. However, something very interesting, and the reason they grow enormously excellent salmon in Macquarie Harbour is the water is actually neither salt nor fresh. What they call brackish. It should be salt water, but the amount of fresh water that pours down through the Gordon River, like if it's, if it's not raining in Tasmania, just wait five minutes. And... The amount of rainwater that comes down there means that the Macquarie Harbour is actually more fresh water than it is salt. In fact, you can almost take a cup, although it looks pretty brown, you can almost take a cup of water and drink it that's that fresh. And my fear is, and my prayer is, that as Christians we wouldn't become brackish. that we become so contaminated with the world that we don't know whether we're salt or fresh water anymore. But just like the Church of Pergamon, we take up the stand that Jesus offers and says, you know what, let's lay down a straight stick in this community. A straight stick looks like the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and we're going to finish up this morning, but... If you need prayer for any reason, maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I've never surrendered to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, I've got too many gods behind the curtain of my heart. Maybe God has placed his finger on your heart. Can we stand in his presence as we finish this morning in prayer? Father, our prayer individually but also corporately as a church is that you would use us, Lord, as a straight stick in this community, that we would stand for Jesus no matter the consequences, Lord God. Lord, I pray that for every one of us that try to tuck those idols in behind the curtain of our hearts, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would tear the curtain down. 
I pray in this room that we would be united. Lord God, I pray that we would stand uncompromisingly on your truth. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need your power. We need your help. We need your revelation. Father, just like the church at Pergamum, I pray you challenge each one of our hearts to stand for you, to live for you, no matter the cost, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.